All right, if you have your Bibles, open them up. We are ready for uh, 1 Samuel chapter 16 today. Um, Super excited. We have some super um, powerful scriptures to go through in the Old Testament. And some of the things that um, really are foundational to God and to Bible are are found in these chapters. We we came to one last week um, when Saul told um, Samuel that he killed all of the Amalekites, which wasn't true. And Samuel uh, challenged Saul on it. And Saul said, um, basically, you know, it was the people. And then Samuel said to Saul, the Lord doesn't require sacrifice. The Lord requires anybody? Obedience. Obedience. The Lord much rather would have us be obedient than make sacrifices. And so that's a a biblical concept of of walking with the Lord is that God's more interested in in your heart and in your obedience than in, in sacrifices. Sometimes we do things that are religious and we do things that, um, you know, are, are just that they're sacrifices there. We, we self-sacrifice, even a fast can, can kind of be that way. You're making a sacrifice to try to make amends or please God when what God is really interested in is your obedience. And so, um, I know I just, I need to either tape it or just get rid of it. Or I need to call Britney Spears and ask her how she does it. Um, Hey, so if you want to turn with me, you can, if you want to hang out in Samuel, I'll be right back there. But in first Corinthians chapter 10, the title of that chapter is old Testament examples. And one of the things I like to share often when we go through the old Testament is that the, you know, first of all, the Bible is about Jesus. And I want everybody to understand that, that the old Testament, the new Testament, the old Testament is a, is an index finger that points to the new, to the cross. And the new Testament is a finger that points back to the cross and everything comes to the cross. But the entire old Testament is about Jesus, the testimony of Jesus. And, and, and in the old Testament, we have literal battles. We're going to see the battle of David and Goliath today. That's where we are in the scriptures. But the battle of David and Goliath is a, is a physical battle that, um, David literally fought a giant. And today on this side of the cross, we don't literally fight giants. But, you know, as Paul told us, we, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. So the same kind of battles that we fight today in the spirit, they're real. They're just as real as David and Goliath. We just don't see our enemy in that way. And it's a spiritual battle on this side of the cross. And it's a, it's a picture of that same spiritual battle on the other side of the cross, which is um, a physical battle. And so all these stories, all these, these things that we go through in the Old Testament that are, you know, three, 4,000 years old, there's, they're so relevant still to us today. And every one of them, God designed and quickened and, and, and used to relate New Testament and today's truth for our lives today. But in, in 1 Corinthians, in chapter 10, I'm not going to read the whole chapter because there's, but there's, the whole concept is there. But Look at verse number um, 11, and it says, now all these things happen. And first he goes through a bunch of Old Testament examples. And then in verse 11, he says, now all these things happen to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition. Somebody say our admonition. What does admonition mean? What? I don't know either. Somebody tell me. No, admonition is like our training, our teaching, our learning, our growing. That, that To admonish somebody would be to correct somebody. Somebody's made a mistake and you want to admonish them. You're going to come and sit them down and say, hey, this is, this is something that's going on in your life. This is a, this is a problem. This is an error. And, and in a loving way, you're going to fix it. You're going to give them advice. And so all of these things, and when it says all of these things happen to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition, it's talking about what we're going to study today in the Old Testament, because the whole chapter is about Old Testament examples upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he falls. And so there are types of things that are going to happen today. So always keep that in mind as we go through the Old Testament, that the Old Testament are types and they're examples to admonish us for living today. Amen. And stop your whining that it's not relevant because it's old. Now I just told you it is. No, it really is. It really is. It's super powerful. So um, we're ready for 1 Samuel chapter 16. And um, the, the basically the title of chapter 16 can be, Don't Judge a Book by Its Cover. And we're going to see in this chapter where God does not judge a book by its cover. And, um, and so it says, Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king from among the sons. So just so that you don't get lost in that, um, we've watched the progression of the first king of Israel, a guy by the name of Saul. 
And Saul started out as, a, as the Hollywood king. Saul was like 6'8", 6'9". It says that he was head and shoulders taller than the average man in Israel. And so I don't know how tall that makes him, but if the average guy is 5'10", 5'11", 6 foot, and he's head and shoulders taller, he's 6'8", 6'9". It says he has long, flowing, um, Rico Suave hair, and he was handsome. He was a Hollywood king. Um, the, the Holy Spirit records about Saul that there was none more handsome than Saul. And so this is the first king of Israel. Well, we watch him who he starts well. He starts very humble. And then, and then he's filled with pride. He's, Jonathan goes out and, uh, and attacks a bunch of people. And, and Saul blows the horn and takes credit for what his son did. And, um, and we've seen the decline of Saul who started out as, as a Christ-like and became an antichrist before the story was over. Well, he, the final straw was when God told him in chapter 15 to wipe out the Amalekites. Man, woman, child, dog, fish, everything. Completely, utterly destroy, annihilate, genocide the, the Amalekites. We unpacked that last week. And Saul didn't do it. He went um, and he brought back the, the, the fat cows and he brought back the king Agag. And, and then he made excuses and Samuel gives him the prophecy in the last chapter that Saul, that God was going to rip or remove the kingdom from Saul and give it to another. And, and um, Samuel began to weep. You know, and you think about like Saul, and Saul wasn't a good guy. He wasn't a good king. He, he's going to turn out to be even way worse. His life is going to go completely south from this point on to the point where he's murdering the priests and the, and the Levites in the house of God. And he's going and he's consulting mediums and, and spiritists rather than going to, to God for advice and, and direction. And one of the characters in the Bible that's like a bad, bad guy, you know. And so, um, so but Samuel begins to weep for him. And you think, why would Samuel weep for this guy? I think Samuel would rejoice when the Lord ripped the kingdom. But, you know, again, these are real stories. These are real lives. These are real people. And Samuel and... Saul were friends. Samuel loved Saul. He cared for Saul. He cared for him in the beginning. He cared for him as he began to watch his life decline. No different than any of us would as we would, you know, watch somebody's life who would, would go in a, in, a, in a bad direction. And even though they're making terrible decisions, we love them. And, and like we talked about on Sunday, that, that God gives us seasons of mourning. And it's important that, that, you know, we mourn well. And I think as Christians, you know, one, one of the things I think we should do better than the world and one of the things we should do well is, is deal with death and dying. You know, my own family, on my mom's side especially, you know, and, and may, maybe Christian and name some of them, but, but they don't deal with death and dying very well. It's, very tr- it's just very difficult. It's hard. It's like you can't talk about it. It's like you're weird about it and you can't have normal conversations and, you know, and they won't face it. They won't deal with it because they just don't deal with death and dying well. And, you know, you, you don't want to sound aloof, but the reality is death and dying is a part of life, right? And, and, and as Christians, we should have a, a different or a better perspective in the world, you know, especially if, if, if we know that, you know, dying is not, it's not dying, it's living. It's not, we, you know, don't say I died, say I moved. I just got a new address, that's all, you know, and I just began to live, live you know, that's what Billy Graham, of Billy Graham, Billy Graham said, don't say I died, because I'm, I'm more alive now than I've ever been at that point. Chuck Smith used to always say, you know, don't, don't print that I died, just print that I moved. I moved on to my eternal home. And, and so, um, so God does deal with grieving and he allows us to grieve. Jesus wept. Jesus wept when Lazarus died over, over grieving, but there's a season of grieving. And here in the beginning part, um, God tells Samuel like, okay, the season of grieving is over. I gave you the time. Like he's not like browbeating him because he was upset and crying over the condition of Saul. But there does come a time as, as we grieve that it's time to move on. And it doesn't mean that we're not you know, sad, or it doesn't mean that we don't remember, and it doesn't mean that we, we don't care, but it means that we go on living our lives in a normal, healthy way at a certain point that the grieving period is over, and, and we grieve well. And again, you know, the Bible says concerning this in the New Testament, it says that, that we, we, we grieve, but not as those that have no hope, and because we have a different hope. So what's our hope, obviously? Our hope is in heaven. Our hope is in Jesus. And our, you know, I guess it's easier when we know somebody, you know, walked with the Lord and knew the Lord and, and made peace with God before they died. And, you know, then there is a hope. We, we can keep hope even if somebody didn't because we don't know. I mean, if we were friends with the thief on the cross, when he died, there wouldn't have been much hope the way that guy lived his life. But he's in heaven, right? And he, and he repented on his deathbed. And so even in that, there's hope, you know. I've done lots of funerals as a pastor where it was like, 
you know, I didn't quite lie, but I had to, you know, I'm not putting anybody, you know, anywhere, but gave some hope. But it was cool. I can do that because there's, there's always hope because you never know. You really never know. And that's why the Bible says we're never to judge somebody's salvation. You know, we are to judge other things and make judgments. That's normal. That's living. That's life. But, but not, not in the area of salvation. So anyways, in verse 2 it says, And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. But the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Did you guys just follow that? Yes or no? Okay, we're going to slow it down so you guys can follow this, okay? We're not going um, to make fun of you. We're just going to slow it down for you. It says, and Samuel said, listen, how can I go? So the Lord says, I want you to go and anoint a king um, over the house of Jesse. And then Samuel's like, I can't go. I can't go down to Jesse's house and anoint a king. If Saul finds out I'm anointing a different king, he's going to kill me. And the Lord says, oh, just say, just say you come down to sacrifice to the Lord. Did the Lord just tell Samuel to lie? My wife's looking at me like, uh-oh. We talked about this premise before, and she's like, don't touch that with a 10-foot pole. And I'm like, no, it's in the Bible. So the, the, he, so he did go to sacrifice to the Lord. So technically, it's not lying. But listen, if we get into it, and I'm not, listen, the Bible says one of the Ten Commandments, right? And it's valid for us today. Thou shalt not lie. But, you know, when your wife says, does this dress make me look fat? Right? And you say, no, sweetie, it looks great. Like, there, there's a time, right, like, in life, just period, right? And, and, and you know, th- this is the argument. Like, you never lie. Some people say, oh, no, it's, it's dogmatic. It's black and white. As Christians, you know, part of God's rule, you, you never lie. You, you tell the truth. And, 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 and that, okay, you don't lie. We don't, we're, you know, the Bible tells us not to lie. The Bible tells us in the New Testament, apart from the Ten Commandments, that, that, that we, we shouldn't lie one to another. But in circumstances, right, you know, you're in your house, and somebody breaks in with a gun and your kids go hide under the bed. And the guy says, where's your son? I can't tell a lie. Go shoot him. He's under the bed. No, you'd say, I don't know. I haven't seen him. You know, he's not here. And, and there are situations, right, where, and, and even, I think we got to be careful. I do think we got to be careful, right, because we can justify sin or lies or something that's just intentionally deceptive. And, and not, it doesn't mean that we get, we get our, our own um, scale or meter, grayscale on, on what's true and what's not. We, we never want to be intentionally deceptive, and there's a place just to tell the truth and always tell the truth. But at the same time, you know, in this situation, God says to Samuel, like, again, you don't have to lie, but just don't tell him that you're going down to anoint a king. Tell him you're going down to, to make sacrifice to the Lord. And then it says in verse 3, Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me one I name to you. So Samuel did what the Lord said and went. I like that. I have that highlighted in my verse, in my Bible. Samuel did what the Lord said. You'd think that's like a difficult concept, but I'll tell you what, your life would go so much smoother if you did what the Lord said. You know, and the Lord's not trying to rob you. He's not trying to be a killjoy. He's not trying to take joy from you or privilege from you. And, and if we just do what the Lord says, life would be so much, so much better. And Samuel did what the Lord said, and he went to Bethlehem. Jesse was from uh, King David or David's from Bethlehem. And the elders of the town trembled at his coming and said, do you come peaceably? It's kind of interesting. You know, you see Samuel come. You have anybody in your life like that? You know, I knew somebody who, um, you know, just just had a very real sensitivity to the Holy Spirit and to know things. And I don't necessarily know if it's a gift of prophecy or just, you know, real insight and you know, when they, when you see their, their number light up on your phone, you're like, Oh, <laughs> am I all right? Am I in trouble? You know, certain phone calls you get and And, and, uh, so Samuel shows up and they're like, Oh, is everything okay? Do you come peaceably? Is there a problem? Or is, you know, are you bringing a word from the Lord? That's, that's scary for us. And he said, peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord, sanctify yourselves. He doesn't even tell uh, Jesse why he's there for yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So it was when they came that he looked at Eliab and he said, surely the Lord is the Lord's anointed is before him. So Eliab is the oldest son of Jesse. Now, Jesse has eight sons. How'd you like to have eight boys? Probably means he had other kids too, girls in the middle there somewhere, but eight sons. 
And the oldest, Eliab, was kind of like Saul. He was tall. He was handsome. He was in good shape. He was, um, you know, he was kind of a Hollywood type, type guy too. And, um, and, and when Samuel saw him, in verse 6, look what it says. So when they came that, that he looked at Eliab and he said, Surely the Lord has anointed him. Surely this is the one. Man, look at that guy. His teeth are shining like Joel Olstein, and it looks like Rico Suave, and he, he's the one for sure. Look at him. Like, this guy is trim. But the Lord said to Samuel, do, what'd you say? Nothing? Nothing? You were just saying how I look like Rico Suave? Yeah. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For the Lord looks at the outward appearance. I'm sorry. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at what? At the heart. And so obviously, right, just the the biblical um, concept and really just, just the life concept that we don't judge people by the cover, right? You know, you guys have met my brother and... You know, if you saw him on the street, you'd probably cross to the other side and, and until you met him, until you got to know him. And, you know, it was cool because um, where I grew up, I grew up um, in Southern California and literally just, just by chance, we didn't design it this way, but like the five kids that I hung out with the most um, was Mike Chow. He was from Taiwan. He moved here from China when he was four years old. Miguel lived across the street from me, Miguel Bukic. He was from Peru. Rudy Hernandez lived behind me. He was from Sinaloa, Mexico. Um, and then Danny Ratcliffe was, was, was a black kid that lived in the alley behind me. And who else was? It was pretty much us five and myself. And I was the only white dude. But it was Mexican, a white kid, a Chinese dude, a Peruvian, and a Mexican dude. And we, we you know, everywhere we went, it was the five of us. And, you know, but we didn't think nothing of it. And then growing up, you know, my brother never, you know, we, I didn't, I just didn't grow up in any kind of, which I knew was there, but I just didn't, didn't have it in my house. It was, you know, so much different races. And, you know, if you were, if you were a racist in school where I grew up, man, you wouldn't last very long. And, 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 and just my brother always taught me the same. You know, you don't judge somebody by a cover. You get to know somebody first. And, you know, we never used the N-word in my house growing up. And, um, you know, because it just wasn't allowed. And um, it just wasn't normal, you know. But, but that, that was a concept that I grew up with. And then kind of growing up rough and fast and... Um, you know, one of, one of the good things I got from the streets was just, you know, that you, you get surprised when you, when, you, when you get to know somebody first and you, and you really judge somebody based on, uh, didn't Martin Luther King get it right? You base somebody on the content of their character and not on the color of their skin or not on the, the outside of, their, of, of how they look. And, um, but we do that. We make judgments. You know, we make judgments all the time. You know, I tell, you know, I tell the kids, some of the kids ask me about getting tattoos and you know, and I tell them, you know, you, you can do it, but my advice is don't put anything where you can't hide it in the T-shirt and don't do anything where, you know, because people are going to judge you for it, right or wrong. It's different today. It's changing a little bit today, right? You know, it didn't used to, it used to be you wouldn't see a waiter with a tattoo. Nowadays, it's, it's pretty normal. But at the same time, you know, until you decide where you're going to go, until you decide what your career is going to be and, you know, and, and, and whether it's going to be acceptable or not and, um, you know, that, that, that people will judge you for those things, you know, especially if you show up with a face tattoo. <laughs> Not a good idea, right? But, um, but anyways, you know, we, we, we just, we want to have the heart of God here and that God looks at the heart. And what's interesting is as they go through this, God is going to look at each of these eight sons of Jesse and he's not going to, he's not going to, um, consider what they look like on the outside or what there, there is. He's looking for the heart um, of the right one. So it says, so Jesse called his second oldest son, basically Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And then Jesse made Shammah pass by the Lord. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. So basically Jesse is or Samuel is there as the prophet. And God says, He's removed the kingdom from Saul. He's going to raise up a new king in Israel. I want you to go down to the house of Jesse, and you're going to anoint one of his son's kings. He kind of goes as king. He goes down in this kind of secretive mission, and he has the oldest son first. And basically the process is he'd have the the kings were anointed with oil. And oil is a representative of what in the Bible? 
the Holy Spirit, the oil, the oil anointing represents the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit being upon him. In the Old Testament, um, as you guys know, kind of, kind of parenthetically, apart from what we're studying, but in the Old Testament, God didn't pour his spirit out upon all flesh. That's a New Testament, um, um, what's the word, uh, thing, dispensation. That's the word I was looking for. That's a New Testament dispensation. But um, in the Old Testament, you do see, you know, I say that all the time, but then you see where, you know, you see different people in the Old Testament, and they're filled with the Holy Spirit or they have the Holy Spirit. Um, but, but usually it was reserved for, um, for the kings, for the leaders, for people that were anointed in special positions. When they went to build, build the temple, and, and Solomon is going to construct God's, the first temple, Solomon's first temple, the house of God. Um, at that time, God anointed and filled certain men with the Holy Spirit for the gifts of working with wood, for the gifts of working with um, masonry and craftsmanship and design. And that was a, that was a, a specific gift of the Holy Spirit. But um, the other thing, you know, that, that, that God takes from Saul um, his Holy Spirit. And then we'll see later in David's life when David sins with Bathsheba and has the adultery and murders her husband. What does David say in Psalm 51? What is his fear at that time? He says, Lord, please do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Why would he say that? Well, first of all, because he witnessed God do the same thing in the first king in Saul's life. As Saul becomes his father-in-law. He's really involved in their family and in the situation. And he's seen that happen where God took his Holy Spirit from Saul. But, but again, you know, then Joel prophesies in the, in, in, that there's coming a day when God will pour his spirit out upon all flesh. And when did that happen? Day of Pentecost, 50 days after Jesus rose from the grave. The day of Pentecost, Peter preaches, Acts chapter 2. And, and on that day, God poured out his Holy Spirit. And from that time, now today, the Bible says that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is as much God as Jesus or the Father, Trinity, three in one. And so that literally means that God makes residency inside of your life. You know, again, parenthetically, but that's why Christians can't be demon possessed. You know, churches teach that and they want to cast demons out of Christians. It's nonsense. If, if, if God lives inside of you and, and literally when Jesus said you must be born again or, or when, you, when you receive Jesus into your heart, you know, we, in, the, in Sunday school, we ask the kids, do you want to ask Jesus in your heart? And, and, and literally that's, that's what happens is that Jesus comes into your life and makes residency inside your life. And the Holy Spirit of God um, is not going to share the temple, your temple with demons, right? Okay, so um, then he says, um, and Samuel said to Jesse, I love this, verse 11, are there, are all the young men here? Like, I know you got seven sons, but is there a chance you got eight? Mm-hmm. Then he said, there remains yet the youngest, and there, there he is keeping the sheep. You know where you find a shepherd? <laughs> keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him, for we will not sit down here until he comes. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy with bright eyes and good looking. And the Lord said, oh, my favorite, one of my favorite Bible words, arise, anoint him for this is the one. The word arise there, you find that all throughout the scripture. It's a man's word, arise to battle, arise and serve the Lord. But, but Jesse, I'm sorry, David Look at the description of David. He was ruddy, bright eyes, and good looking. The word ruddy means that he was red-haired and freckle-faced. I didn't know red-haired and freckle-faced goes with the term good looking. (laughs) Unless it's my wife, of course. Then red-haired freckle-faced is right on, but... The only other red-haired, freckle-faced person I know is that kid from Children of the Corn, and I wouldn't exactly describe him as good-looking. But, um, but I like the fact that if all he told us about King David was that he was ruddy, I might think he was kind of bagging on David, but he's not. You know, he says that David was ruddy, he was good-looking. And, um, and then in verse 13, it says, Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord. I like that he did it in the midst of his brothers. You know, that, that's, that's a... Um, biblical concept as well, that the anointing comes in the midst of the brothers. And, you know, in the area of anointing, and I'm going to be careful I don't move too slow through this and, and unpack every one of these verses, but because I want to cover two chapters tonight. But um, 
But the anointing or the, 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 the gifts or the skills that God is, has given you, um, people around you that love God and love you, they can see those gifts and skills. And those anointings are, are public. And, 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 you know, you don't have to manufacture them. And you don't have to, you know, let everybody know who you are and what you have and what you can do. That, you know, God, God reveals those things. Those anointings happen in public. And here David is anointed in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, upon David, from that day forward. So Samuel arose and went to Ramah. And so there we get the connection of the Spirit of the Lord. The Holy Spirit comes upon David. Now this says upon, not necessarily in, which we could make a, you know, a distinction between the two. Again, between um, I'll pour my Spirit out upon all flesh in the New Testament and, and, and this upon here where the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. But no doubt David was filled with the Holy Spirit. And, um, and it says in verse 14, but the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and a distressing spirit from the Lord troubled him. So now we're back to Saul. All of a sudden we get the anointing of David as King. Now David is anointed King, but what's interesting is that David will not actually serve as King for the next 14 years. And it's pretty interesting as you go through this and you just, I don't know, you just question like, why is David not placed in as king? Why did God allow all of this season of, of Saul continuing to rule and reign and run muck? And, and David all the way through it had opportunities to kill Saul and he wouldn't do it. And David said, it, you know, I, I won't touch the anointed of the Lord. And he wouldn't kill Saul. But I, I guess the kind of the, the same picture is true today. The reality is that Jesus is our king. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And, and yet the, Jesus doesn't necessarily rule and reign today. He doesn't, he doesn't rule and reign as he will when he's crowned in the, in the millennium. And as, as, as he comes back in his second coming, as he comes back as king, as he comes back as a lion of the tribe of Judah, there, there'll be a real ruling of Jesus here on earth that, that, that's, you know, that's not like it is today. So we get that kind of picture that's valid for today. And, and check it out what it says in, in verse 14. It says, a distressing spirit from um, departed and a distressing spirit from the Lord troubled Saul. What does that mean, from the Lord? A distressing spirit from the Lord. Is that a mistake? Or did God send a troubling spirit on Saul? Pretty simple, right? Like you got a problem with it? Tough. Suck it up. God sent a, a distressing spirit upon Saul. It's just what it says. It's what happened. Um, and Saul's servant said to him, surely a distressing spirit from God is troubling you. Let our master now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful player on the harp. And it shall be that he will play it with his hand. And when the distressing spirit from God is upon you and you shall be well. So Saul said to his servants, prove me now a man, provide me now a man who can play well and, and bring him to me. Then one of the servants answered and said, Look, I have seen the son of Jesse, a Bethle the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a mighty man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a handsome person, and the Lord is with him. Don't forget verse uh, 18. We're going to go back to that. There's another description of David. And therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me your son David, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread, a skin of wine, and a young goat, and sent them by his son David to Saul. So let's, let's come back to um, verse 17 real quick. Now, one of the, um, I think I'm going to do it actually. It's so, so powerful. I think I'm going to take maybe after Matthew, I'm going to take a season and go through a couple weeks of the life of David. But the concept in the life of David is that David is known as a man after God's own heart. And, and that, that concept is so powerful um, that, that, you know, and David was, had lots of sins. You know, I think I said a couple Sundays ago that, that David's sins and Saul's sin, and Saul goes down in history as, you know, one of the worst characters in the Bible. And David's going to go down in history as one of the greatest characters in the Bible. And, and yet the, the difference was that, that David had a heart after God. He was a man after God's own heart. And what's cool about David is that David was the best of both worlds. David was like that guy that if he lived around you, you'd have like such gift envy. You know, it was like, it's like, you know, in the ministry, there's, there's this guy, and I have, I have gift envy for this kid, you know. He's um, Jeremy Bear, the one who's in, uh, I, I think I have a man crush on him, but he's, um, he's in Serbia now as a missionary, 
And he's just, you know, he's as handsome as they come. He plays the guitar like a beast. He sings like Jeremy Camp. He preaches like Levi Lesko. I mean, the dude just has it all. He can play the guitar. He can sing. He can preach. He can, you know, he just, every gift there is in ministry, the kid has it, you know. And you're like, he's so well-rounded. And, and you look at King David, who, who's a man after God's own heart. And, and, you know, when David went to build the king or the, the temple, what did God tell him? He said, no, you can't build the temple. Why? Because you're a man of war and your hands are too bloody. So we have a guy that was a man's man. In the next chapter, if I'll ever get there, he's going to kill Goliath, this giant, as a young boy. He's going to say that he killed a bear and a lion protecting his sheep. But yet he played the harp skillfully. He wrote poetry. You know, he probably wore loafers and, you know, skinny jeans. And, you know, yeah, he didn't have no problem with, with, with any of those things. And yet he was still such a man's man. He was a talented musician. He was a talented artist. He, he was a, a thinker. David was a man who, who, who loved God so deeply with his heart. He wrote psalms like, you know, like, where does this stuff come from? As the deer panteth for water, oh, doth my soul pant after thee, O Lord. Like, really? Did this guy see a deer, you know, out in the wild panting for water? And, and, and he equates that to, to how his heart longs for God. And so, you know, the description of David there in, in 18 is, 17 and 18 is, you know, it gives the well-rounded picture. And then back to verse 21, it says, So David came to Saul and stood before him, and he loved him greatly and became his armor bearer. <coughs> so who loved who greatly? David loved Saul greatly. Okay, I don't know, I don't know how that's going to play out or why that was again, but... You know, again, real lives, real people, and David had a heart, and he, and he chose to love Saul. And he knew. Now, at this point, you know, Saul doesn't know. This is coincidence. This is not, you know, Saul, uh, um, Saul doesn't call for David because he knows that Samuel just went to his house and anointed him king. Samuel, Saul doesn't know at this point anything about it. God puts it together. There are no coincidences, right? It's God's will. And so Samuel, uh, Saul's having this distressing spirit. And one of his advisors said, you know, find someone who can play some music for you. And when they play the music, it'll soothe your soul and it'll help you deal with this distressing spirit. And he said, yeah, go ahead, find me somebody like that. And they went out and they found this kid, David, who they knew was, was talented musician. And then Saul said to Jesse, saying, please let David stand before me, for he has found favor in my sight. And so it was whenever, listen, the spirit from God was upon Saul that David would take the harp and play it with his hand. And then Saul would become refreshed and well, and the distressing spirit would depart from him. Hey, really quickly, but really importantly, this is one of the places in the Bible, kind of a proof text about how music and the Psalms specifically and worship music and, and soulful music is a remedy for depression, is a remedy for feeling bad. You know, I know when my, when my wife's mom died, um, you know, through that season, especially in the immediate days, you know, she, she went to sleep every night with, with Jeremy Camp on and you know, her favorite worship songs. And, you know, to this day, she's cool about it, but she hates that song, Give Me Jesus. But, you know, we sing that song from some time to time. I always look over at her and she's got this look on her face like, I hate this song. <laughs> because she listened to it like 500 times when, you know, in the week that her mom died and on repeat, um, you know, in the nights right after her mom died, getting ready to just being able to sleep, you know, and and when that distressing spirit was on her, it was, it was really worship music was the only thing that would let her sleep. It's the only thing that would soothe her soul. And, and again, the Psalms too. The Psalms are a biblical prescription for, um, for depression. So if you're going through seasons of that, read the Psalms. The Psalms are so encouraging. They're so uplifting. They're songs of worship. They're songs of, um, of, of encouragement. And so, you know, reading through the Psalms, playing worship music, and there's something that's biblical, there's something that's real about what um, the right kind of music and the right kind of direction um, through worship and through the Psalms does during these seasons. Just like it worked on Saul, it'll work on you and me. Amen? Okay, now one of the probably most more well-known chapters in the Bible, probably one that uh, 
Sunday school teachers teach about every three weeks, right? Um, the story of David and Goliath. Now, I, 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 last time I got some notes in my Bible because I taught through First uh, Samuel chapter 17. The last time I taught through it, I went into the, um, that parallel between physical battles and spiritual battles. And as we go through it, you see over and over and over again that, that Goliath and the story of David and Goliath represent spiritual battles in our life today. And as David fought a literal giant, we fight spiritual battles on this side of the, 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 the cross. So I don't really know how to unpack that, but um, I guess I can say, you know, when... Um, trying to figure out how I can maybe unpack it and not take an hour. Um, when, when, I was, when I got saved, I was 20 years old. And prior to that, I had been, um, I had been addicted to, to substance. And so um, for about six months, a year leading up to me becoming a Christian, I, I had decided, and I decided when I was just young, really, really, really young. You know, I, I found my oldest brother, Sonny, um, um, overdosing. And he, and we're, we knew he was missing and something crazy was going on and we were running around looking for him. And I found him like four houses down from my house behind a neighbor's fence, laying on the grass, waiting to die. And we called the ambulance and, um, I don't know, I was probably 10, 11 years old and, you know, really all the way growing up, I always had it in my mind, in my heart that I wasn't going to follow in those footsteps, that that wasn't going to be me someday. And, and here I am 19, 20 years old. And I'm, I'm doing exactly that. I'm, I'm going more and more and more in the direction I don't want to go. And I'm trying to stop. I'm, it's like, you know, I used to say it's like I'm driving a car and I'm pushing on the brakes. And, and I have no brakes. Nothing is happening. And, and so, you know, for six months, eight months, nine months, I'm trying to get clean. I'm trying to stop. That's not who I am. It's not who I want to be. Um, it's never who I wanted to be. And yet it is actually, it is absolutely who I am becoming fast. And when I got saved and when I asked Jesus in my heart, you know, he delivered me from the substance abuse and he changed my life. And, and one of the, 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 the effective things that happened in that was that he showed me that, you know, I was fighting a battle with physical weapons and I didn't have the right weapons prior to having Jesus in my life to be able to have victory. And that I was fighting, um, I couldn't fight a spiritual battle without spiritual weapons. And so it was spiritual weapons of warfare that, 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 that I had to use. And again, right, Paul tells us, Ephesians 6, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and a host of darkness in wicked places and high places. And, and so, you know, if we're fighting battles in the flesh to overcome something, if we're not fighting with spiritual weapons, we're fighting a losing battle. And so the, this, is, this is kind of inbred into this story of David and Goliath that, that even though the picture here in the Old Testament is of, of a physical and actual giant um, and actual swords and spears and, and rocks, that, that today it's relevant in, in the way of a spiritual battle. But I'm not getting into that today. That's all I'm going to say about that. Um, I'm not going to really kind of cover it from that angle. We're just going to more cover it from a practical angle and uh, going to highlight a few things as we go through it. Super long chapter. Hopefully we'll be able to cover some of it, most of it. In chapter 17, it says, Now when Philistines gathered their armies together to battle and were gathered at Sokoth, which belongs to Judah, they encamped between Sokoth and Ezekah and Ephesdamon. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together and they encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in battle array against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on a mountain on one side and Israel stood on a mountain on the other side. With the valley between them. Pretty easy to picture, right? And, and a champion went out from the camp of the Philistines named Goliath. From Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. So a cubit is the distance between your uh, middle finger and your elbow on the back side. So they would say they, they averaged that to be about 18 inches, right? Before the days that we had, you know, yardsticks and tape measures and you wanted to build your house, you, you would measure it in spans. And so a span, again, was from here to here and then a cubit and a cubit was measured from your thumb to your to your pinky finger. So this is the distance of a cubit and this is the distance of a span. Span, cubit, doesn't matter. Not relevant, but that's what it is. But when you put them together, um, 18 inches and 
whatever that is, six inches, eight inches, it comes out to be nine foot, six inches tall. So Goliath is um, anywhere in that, that range, you know, it's between nine and 10 feet tall. I think the Guinness Book of World Records, I actually don't know if he's in the Guinness Book of World Records, I just know if he's in the history books. I think the tallest man that's ever lived was um, about 10 feet tall. And so he would put Goliath right in that, in that range. They found skeletal bones, and you can check this stuff out if you're interested, but it's, it's all over the Internet. It's, it's, it's common. It's in archaeology. But we're finding today um, in different places skeletal remains of literal giants that walked and lived. You know, we get glimpses of them from time to time. You know, I think of like Andre the Giant, right? You remember Hulk Hogan picked him up over his head in WrestleMania? No, nobody? Just me? Do you remember that? It was like the biggest thing in, in, in wrestling in, the, in those days, right? Hulk Hogan body slammed Andre the Giant. But Andre the Giant's probably better known, and, and rightfully so, not for his wrestling career, but for his role in The Princess Bride, right? That's, that's how we know Andre the Giant. But, you know, you think of these types of individuals, and Andre the Giant wasn't, you know, he was a seven-footer, but he wasn't a ten-footer. You know, I think the tallest guy that's ever played in the in the NBA was seven six. A couple of them, Manute Bowl, um, that Sean Bradley, that white kid from Utah, he was seven foot six. Um, so you know, we don't we don't see him very often. But normally, those guys that are really tall, you know, just they have a disease or they have something wrong, and they don't, you know, they can't run or they can't really do athletic things. But I, I don't think that was obviously the case. And a, a biblical, the Bible records giants and. You know, and they were athletic, and they were they were soldiers, and they were warriors, and so here we have Goliath, and he's just this Goliath of a human. And it says, um, and he had a bronze helmet on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was five thousand shekels of bronze, so that's about two hundred pounds. And he had a bronze armor on his legs, and his bronze javelin between his shoulders, and the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam. So weaver's beam, I think, is big. I think that's what that means. And his iron spearhead weighed 600 shekels, and a, and a shield bearer went before him. So the, the, the head of his spear was 25 pounds. I don't know if you guys ever hung a, swung a, you know, a sledgehammer or something, even a 5-pound, 10-pound sledgehammer is a lot. And this dude had a 25-pound um, um, head on his spear, and not, not, you know, not to mention the armor bearer that went before him. And then it says in verse 8, Then he stood and cried out to the armies of Israel and said to them, Why have you come out to me to line for battle? Am I not a Philistine and you the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill you, then you shall be our servants and serve us. So the idea originally on the onset here would seem that, you know, it's this idea that they just each team, each army sends out one champion and the, the winner of this one battle decides who wins the war rather than everybody dying. But that's not exactly how it's going to go down. Everybody's going to die anyways, but that was kind of the way. You see this in some movies sometimes, you know, most of these ideas come from the Bible. And when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistines, they were dismayed and one knee smote the other. That means they were greatly afraid. And now David was the son of, that, of the Ephratite of Bethlehem, Judah, whose name was Jesse, and who had eight sons. And, and the man was old, advanced in years in the days of Saul. The three oldest sons of Jesse had gone to follow Saul to the battle. The names of his three sons, we met them in the last chapter, went to battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and next to him Abinadab, and the third son, Shammah. And David was the youngest, and the three oldest followed Saul. But David occasionally went and returned from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. And the Philistines drew near and pressed himself forty days, morning and evening. So the Philistine would come down every morning um, for forty days, and he would defy the armies of Israel. He would mock their God. He would challenge the the, the Israelite people and, um, you know, and it says that they were, they were greatly afraid. 
And then, and then David is going to come in as the hero, you know. And one of the things that, you know, bad biblical expository, you see it sometimes. You see it kind of in the, you know, seeker-friendly model and in, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the some of the young gun churches and stuff. And, you know, the, this story of David and Goliath. And they always want to make you David in the story, you know, that you're, you're the hero of the, of the plot. And, you know, God has you as, as David in the story. And, you know, but it's it's really just not 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 good Bible expository. You're not David. You know, in this story, David is Jesus. He's the savior. He's the hero. And you're one of the scared Israelites that's hiding up on the hill with one knee smoting the other. And you know, I know that'll sell less less seats in our church, but it's the truth. And so, you know, I'd rather give you the truth than than fill more seats. But um, you're not David. And you'll hear that, you know, you'll hear that. You'll go through all these stories and you'll, you'll hear these guys and these different preachers and they want to make you the, the, the king of the story. And, and it's just not true. You know, when you hear that, just know Jesus is always the, the hero. You know, Jesus is always the king of the story. Jesus is always the savior. Jesus is always the one that gets the glory and the victor. And it says in verse 20. So David rose early in the morning, left the sheep with a keeper and took the things and went, went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the camp of the army and was going out to fight and shouting, and shouting for the battle. For Israel and the Philistines had drawn up in battle array army against, against the army. And David left his supplies in the hand of the supply keeper, ran to the army and came and greeted his brothers. Then as he talked with them, there was the champion of the Philistines of Gath, Goliath by name, coming up from the armies of the Philistines, and he spoke according to the same words. So David heard them. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were dreadfully afraid. So the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And, shall, and it shall be that the man who kills him, the, the king will enrich with great riches, will give him his daughter and give his father's house exemption from taxes in Israel. Dude, if that was happening today, every one of us would be in that line to get tax-free the rest of your life and all your family. We'd all line up for that one, not have to deal with the IRS or any taxes for the rest of our life. And then the, um, the, the king said, I'll give you his daughter for a wife, which would make you the king's son-in-law. We're going to find out later this. David is going to eventually marry this woman. Saul's going to give her to him. Well, David's actually going to go get her. Um, we'll get to that. Kind of a funny story. Um, and, 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 but, you know, the, the, she turns out just to be crazy woman, you know, bad situation for David. And, um, you know, she's not a good wife. And, you know, if you think Saul, that Saul couldn't find anybody else to marry her, so he gave her away in this fight. It was his only way he could find somebody to marry her. It was like a, you know, the bride for the, wasn't really a prize, but they didn't know it at the time. Saul's like, I got a good way to get rid of this girl too. Her name was Micah or Michael. And then it says, um, and then David spoke to the men who stood by him saying, what shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? So the first mention here um, of God is David mentioning the, 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 the living God. And David's just going to see this whole thing from a different perspective. And I think that's kind of the big lesson for, for us and in faith and in walking with the Lord is that we see life through a different lens. We see life through different goggles. You remember Elijah and, and his, his, his servant Gehazi in the armies of, of uh, angel army story, right? Elijah is there and, and the armies of the enemies are gathered and there's just so many of them on the hill and, and, and um, Gehazi is freaking out and one knee smoting the other and he's afraid and um, Elijah's there and he's just like cool as the other side of the pillow and, and Gehazi is like can't figure out why Elijah's not scared and afraid. There's this complete army, physical army that's there gonna attack him and, uh, and Elijah just says kind of cool. He says, Lord, open his eyes. And the Lord opens the eyes of, of Gehazi and he sees the, ar the angel army that the Lord has surrounding this, this other army. And all of a sudden, what changed? His perspective, right? His situation didn't change, but his perspective about the situation changed. And he saw it from a different set of eyes. And David, he, he doesn't see this as a physical battle. He doesn't see this as nine foot six, 
spear the size of a weaver's beam, a, a, another guy that runs out in front of him and, 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 and with a shield who protects anything coming at him. And, you know, David's just looking at it from a complete different perspective, a perspective of faith. And then it says, um, and the people answered him in this manner, saying, so it shall be done for the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was aroused against David. And he says, why did you come here, come down here? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your pride and the insolence of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. So his brother's starting to get the, the feel that David might do something stupid. And so he loves his little brother, he cares for him, but he also knows his little brother is, you know, ready for a fight and, and, and he doesn't want to see something happen to him. And so he's like, I know what you're up to, little bro. You ain't, you ain't going to pull that here. You better go back to those sheep, you know, and he, as big brothers do, he kind of, you know, kind of goads him a little bit, picks on him a little bit, makes fun of him and tells him to go back to the sheep where he belongs. But he's really doing it because he knows the heart of David, you know, and, and David having a bunch of older brothers, you know, he probably was... You know, I never had to worry about too too much of a fight. You know, you got seven older brothers, and you're walking around town. Little brother's always the one that starts the fight because he doesn't have to finish it. The older brothers are going to finish it for him. Nothing's ever going to happen to him. I I, did, I had older brothers too, but people when I was in when I was in school, people weren't afraid of my older brothers. They were afraid of my older sister. <laughs> I ain't kidding either. True story. They they wouldn't mess with me not because of my brother, but because of my sister Sherry. They did not want to see her. And in verse 29, it says, and David said, what have I done now? What have I done? I didn't do anything, you know, and there, and there, is there not a cause? Oh man. Somebody say, is there not a cause? This again, you guys, this, I wish I could preach this, but this is the idea that the faith of David, the, the such, such a key verse, like this is, you know, we, we don't have this on plaques and on banners and on our rooms and people aren't, you know, tattooing this stuff. But this this is ever bit as good. This little phrase right here, this biblical phrase. So underline it, highlight it, know it. And the whole story builds up to it. And, and David's whole perspective on this fight with Goliath is so big, right? He's got a big picture mentality about the fight, about the life. And he says, is there not a cause is there not a cause in Israel? Are we not a people that, 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 that are destined to win? Are we not a people that, that are destined to a certain call and a certain cause? And, and will God not fight for us? And will God not show up? Is, is there not a cause? I love it. I love that expression, that heart, that, that fight, that that's, you know, that can be, again, that can be our mantra. That can be, you know, that's definitely tweetable and that's bumper stickerable and, you know, everything else, that idea that is there not a cause? You know, and even in our lives, is, does God have a cause for your life? Does God have a plan for your life? Is there a direction for your life? Absolutely, right? And, and as you make decisions and as you move forward and as you live for God and as you, you know, as you, as you face fear and as you face giants, you, you don't see the giants. You see the cause that's bigger than the giants, amen? You see, you see the desire, you see the, the heart of God that, that, that overcomes. And David here... And you see, again, you know, we get these these powerful glimpses into, you know, that phrase that David is a man after God's own heart. And then it says, um, then he turned from him toward another and said the same thing. Dude, it was so it was so nice. He had to say it twice. Right. Is there not a cause? And then he turned to the guy next to him and he said, is there not a cause? See, that preaches. I'm telling you. And then, and then these people answered him and said, the, as the first ones did. Now when the words which David spoke were heard, they reported them to Saul and he sent for him. And then David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail him because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you're not able to go out against the Philistine and fight with him. You're a youth and, a man, and, a, and he, a man from war, from his youth. So we use that in... Uh, in um, youth group and, and with our younger kids, we use that verse to say, no, 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 never let anybody say to you what Saul said to David, that you're just a youth. And he was a warrior from his youth. You know, that, that let no one despise your youth. 
And that you could do big things from God at any age, at any, any time. It's not about your age. It's about your willingness just to be obedient to what God's called you to do and, and walk in obedience and faith. And David here is a classic example of that. And it says, um, But David said to Saul, verse 34, Your servant used to keep his father's sheep. Yeah, we know that, David. You're a shepherd. And when a lion and a bear came and took the lamb out of the flock, I went out after it and struck it and delivered the lamb from the mouth. And when it arose against me, I caught it by its beard and struck it and killed it. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't know how important that sheep would have been. I'd almost let him die, right? Like, like he ain't messing around. This is one sheep. And again, you guys, these aren't fairy tales. These aren't, you know, th- this one is like, okay, I'm just going to take this on faith. You said it, but... David as a boy, a young boy, I don't know what kind of bears they had in Israel. They probably figure it out. You know, there's a story in the Bible where um, Elijah calls bears out of the wilderness and it mauls a bunch of kids. Yeah, I know. It's a crazy story. Look it up. It's funny, though. They were making fun of him and they were saying, you bald head, baldy. You know, they were like playing little kid games and Elijah got tired of them making fun of him being bald. They were, they were teenagers. And so, so Elijah calls... Yeah, we'd like to call some bears out of the wilderness sometimes too to maul our teenagers. But I mean, they were, they were big enough bears that they mauled the teenagers. And, and, it, and it doesn't just say that David like got the best of the bear. It says he grabbed him by the beard. Like he grabbed that thing under the chin and sumo wrestled him. Maybe, maybe body slammed him like Hogan did Andre the Giant, you know. But a real story of, of David... Literally, literally killing a bear, but he's not done. So he's, he's out there and he says, man, I killed a bear. And then he says, in verse 36, your servant has killed both lion and bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing he has defied the armies of the living God. And again, David's perspective is that God's going to actually do the fighting. And, and God, no doubt, um, supernaturally showed up when he fought the bear, when he fought the lion. And moreover, verse 37, David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go and the Lord be with you. So again, David's going to understand. He didn't take credit. He took, I mean, he said what happened. But, you know, was he being prideful? No, because actually the, the definition of humility is an honest assessment of who you are or what you're capable of. You know, if I can throw a 105 mile an hour fastball and hit all four corners with it, you know, and I say, oh, I'm just, I'm not average. You know, I'm not very good of a baseball player. I'm not a very good pitcher. That's, that's not humility. That's false humility. You know, I can find a humble way or a nice way or, you know, you know to say, yeah, I can, I can throw a, ba- a baseball pretty fast where I want it to go. Um, but so David is given an honest assessment of, of what's happening, but he gives the Lord credit. And he, and he says that, that I, I realize that God is the one who delivered me from the bear and the lion. And just like that, God is the one who's going to have to show up and fight this battle against this, this giant. I'm not going to go out there and fight him on my own. And it's not going to go well unless the Lord shows up, right? Is that not a biblical concept that, you know, I've been driving home, driving home, driving home in our church for lots and lots of years. From the day I got here, that, that, that the, the most important thing, the everything, the only thing in our lives is the presence of God. How do you know if it'll go well? Like, you know, if God shows up, it's going to go well. And how do you know, you know, if God shows up, God shows up, God shows up. And, and everything that we do is the presence of God. Go with us. Be with us. We need, we want. It, it's all about God's presence in our life. And, and it's, it's the key for victory in every area. And David understands that. He understands he's going to go out and fight Goliath. And, and he's, not, he's not bragging that he's just going to go out and kill Goliath. But he does have a confidence that God is going to show up. And he knows if God does show up, that Goliath don't stand a chance. And then in verse 30, 38, well, I'm sorry, let's finish that. Lion of Paul with the bear and deliver me from, verse 37, from the hand of the Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. And Saul clothed David with his armor and he put the bronze helmet on his head and he clothed him with a coat of mail. And David fastened his sword to his armor and tried to walk for he had not tested them. And David said to Saul, I cannot walk in these for I have not tested them. So David took them off. Like he tried to put on the armor of the warriors and couldn't walk right. It didn't fit him right shield falling down or helmet falling down in his eyes 
And so he takes them off, and now he doesn't have anything, no protection, no, no weapons. And then it says he took his staff in his hand, and he chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook and put them in the shepherd's bag and a pouch which he had and a sling which was in his hand, and he drew near to the Philistine. So we'll go there um, in the Elah Valley when we're in Israel. We'll be there in a couple, uh, couple of weeks now. And so when we get there... Everybody always, you know, we tell this story of David and Goliath where this happened. And in the Elah Valley there, in the riverbed, there's, there's these smooth stones. And everybody likes to take one, you know, and put them in. The, they say you're not supposed to take them, but everybody and their mom takes them. And the tour guide, every once in a while, he'll, he'll make a joke. He'll be like, oh, it's okay. You know, a new truckload was delivered last night. You guys are good, you know. But, but you go there. And so David has his staff. Now, I don't know why he decided to take his staff. It wasn't really a weapon, but he keeps his staff in his hand and he chooses five smooth stones to go and fight Goliath and he has a slingshot but it's not a slingshot like we like we use today that has a a v with a thing you go like that and you you slingshot a slingshot that the shepherds used it it was um, a leather rope and it had a pouch in the middle and two ropes on either side of it then you'd put your rock in the middle and you'd fold your two ropes up and you'd hold them in your hand and then you'd have your rock down here and you'd spin the the slingshot and then you let go of one side of the rope and the rock would sling and and they they were super accurate the bible talks about a tribe in israel 600 men who like at 200 yards could hit 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 a you know quarter size target with these slingshots they became very very good at them and so no doubt you know one of the things that the shepherds would do in israel is they'll use these slingshots the same way and it's the same thing that they did in the you know, even today, you'll go out in Israel and you'll see in, in Bedouin tribes and different things, you know, young boys who are with the sheep and living out there watching the animals and they'll use these slingshots. And if a sheep starts to stray, they're, they're so accurate with them that they can throw a rock and it'll come over the top of the sheep's head and, and just right in front of its face. And it just scares the sheep enough that he turns back towards where he's supposed to go. And they can, they can be super accurate with them. So David, no doubt, in all the years as a shepherd, and, you know, he got pretty good with that, that sling. Somebody said, why did David take five stones? If God was with him and, and he had all this faith, he only needed one stone, right? You know why he took five stones? Goliath had four, four brothers. True story. So he takes five stones. Maybe he thought after he killed Goliath, his brothers were going to get froggy and he was going to take them out too. But um, So it says in verse 41, we're almost done, you guys, two more minutes. So the Philistines came and, be, and began drawing near to David, and the man who bore the shield went before him. And when the Philistines looked about and saw David, he disdained, he, he disdained him, for he was only a youth, ruddy and good-looking. So God doubles down on that little phrase about King David. And so the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? Because David had his staff in one hand. And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Little g. Verse 43, right? So the Philistine gods, the different um, asterisks, Baals, and different gods of the pagans and the Philistines. Um, um, Goliath began to curse David by his own gods. And then the Philistine said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. You know, I like this idea and I don't know where it fits in, but it's just not really important, but I I like the idea. Um, David, uh, Goliath says to David, come to me. Do you remember Jonathan when, when he went to his his armor bearer and just Jonathan's armor bearer went and fought the whole army of the Philistines and they kind of threw out that fleece and they said that if they say to us, come up here, then we'll go to them. And if they say to us, wait there, we're coming to you. And we know that's a sign that, that we're not supposed to do this. But the sign to go was the enemy saying, come on up here. And this is the same thing that, that Goliath says to David. You come down here and I'll show you a thing or two. And then in verse 45, and David said to the Philistine, you come at me with a sword, with a spear and a javelin. Listen, somebody say hallelujah. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of armies of Israel, whom you have defiled, defied this day. The Lord, not me. Not, not my stones, but this day David understood the Lord. And you see that verse 46, how is Lord spelled there? Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's the tetragrammaton, right? That's, that's the, the name of the Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah. You know, we don't know the pronunciation. We don't know what the vowels are, but that's the Y-H-V-H. 
the, the name of the Lord. He says, the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you and take your head from you. And this day I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and all his assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword or spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hands. So, so much in there, you guys highlight that, um, does not save with sword or spear. The battle is the Lord's. And then in verse 48, so it was when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to David that David hurried and ran toward the army to meet the Philistine. Then David put his hand in his bag and he took out a stone and he slung it and it struck the Philistine in his forehead so that the stone sank into his forehead and he fell down on his face to the earth. So um, it says David ran at him. I like that. Like David was so pumped up and he was so believing what was going on that, you know, at that point he wasn't like, oh, there I come. You know, like he's just like he ran down to him. And he, and he swung that, that stone and he let it go. And no doubt the Holy Spirit was, was with that stone, covered that stone, directed that stone, guided that stone, and it landed in between his eyes and his forehead. And it says it sunk into his forehead. Now, if you're Goliath and you're nine feet six, just your, your anatomy says that your skull is probably pretty thick. I mean, that stone had to, had to go two inches into his skull to, to do what it did. And he just probably wobbled for a minute straight down. Boom, he went down. So it wasn't much of a fight. And, and he struck the Philistine and killed him. But there was no sword in the hand of David. Therefore, David ran and stood over the Philistine, took his own sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it and carried it around for a couple of days. He did. That's not in there, but he, he did. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. You guys were out of time, so we're going to stop right there. Um, I'm going to make a note where we're going to pick up. What verse was I just in? 53. No. 51. Okay. All right. Let's stand. Might we have the heart of David? Might we have the faith of David? Anything that David has, I'm telling you, you want it. It's good. So let's just, uh, let's pray and ask the Lord to, to give us the faith of David, the heart of David, the, you know, the, 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 the heart after a man, after God's own heart, and a little bit of what David had that he got, a little bit of that faith that, gave, that made David fight giants in his life and be successful, that, you know, encouraged, encouraged David to, to be a leader, to be an example to other people, and inspire hope in other people's lives through through his own faith father we come before you and we thank you jesus for king david we thank you god for this the many many um real life truths and powerful um encouragements and as i started in corinthians that the the these stories in the old testament were given for our admonition and they're not stories they're real life events that happened and lord each one of them is is given to encourage us lord to tell us that we can trust you and as David fought Goliath, it was only in trusting you and in you showing up and in the presence of God that made David successful. And, and Lord, it's the same thing in our life today that will make us successful. It's knowing you. It's, 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 it's having faith in you, believing that you're going to show up and do miracles. And so, God, we ask that you'd, you'd fill each one of us with your spirit. We pray, God, that you would give us a, a heart of David and that we would be men and women after the heart of God and that we would have compassion and we'd be skillful in war and and, and Lord, that we would be skillful in, in, in the arts and in, in other things as well. And just well-rounded because you've gifted us and you've filled us. God, help us to be compassionate like Jesus was and to love and care like Jesus did. And Lord, I pray that you would uh, work and deal in each one of our hearts and lives, God, with, um, with the issues, with the weights and the sins which so easily ensnare us. The parts of our life, God, that, that cloud our, our judgment, that cloud our ability to, to commune and fellowship with you, to hear your voice. And Lord, things that, that just get in the way, that you would, you would help us to deal with those. And, and as Saul was to, to utterly destroy the Amalekites, we're called in the Bible to utterly destroy those parts of our lives that, that keep us distant from you. And God, we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And everyone said? Amen. Amen. God bless you guys.